Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Tonight, we're here to celebrate No Place for a Puritan. It's a new anthology of desert literature. I'm going to let Ruth introduce it as opposed to me, because I'm sure she will do it much more eloquently. This is for sale at our counter, as well as selected uh, titles by our readers tonight. Um, but let me just say a few words about Ruth, who will be up here in just a minute. Uh, Ruth Nolan, a former Bureau of Land Management California Desert District Helicopter Hotshot Firefighter, and say that five times fast, an inner city high school teacher, is the editor of No Place for a Puritan, and uh, a contributor to Inlandia, a literary journey through Southern California's Inland Empire. Both books were published by Heyday Books. She is a poet and writer whose subjects range from desert noir to motherhood, and her writing has been published in numerous literary journals. She's editor of the desert literary magazine Phantom Seed, which we have here tonight, published twice yearly, and is associate professor of English at College of the Desert, where she teaches creative writing, California desert and Native American literature, and advises the literary magazine Solstice. She has taught the Inlandia Writers' Workshop since 2008, and is founder editor of its annual participant journal, Slouching Toward Mount Rubidoux Manor. She recently collaborated with the UCR California Museum of Photography on a film, Escape to Reality, and is also an avid photographer. She has published three collections of poetry, Wild Wash Road, Dry Waterfall, and Lava Flow Petroglyphs, out with Petroglyph Books. So uh, let's go ahead and have Ruth come up here, and she can tell you more about what's going on tonight. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, this just shows me what I kind of suspected once I got the idea for doing this anthology, is that the desert, California desert, is hot, right? Hot literary-wise, hot creatively, and hot, hot. I was just on a field trip to the Salton Sea on Sunday. It was very, very hot. Down to Salvation Mountain. Some of you may know that from the film Into the Wild. In, uh, from the book. It has an excerpt from the book here in this book. Um, I'm going to read just a few poems to start with and then talk a little bit about the anthology, which I originally decided to do um, for my college students realizing that they had no place to call their own. And this grew into um, a peripatetic, all-encompassing project, which has, as I like to say, a little something for everybody, ranging from Native American history and stories to early explorers to an investigation and celebration of some of the iconic symbols and experiences of the desert, like rattlesnakes and mirages, but also questions, challenges, and debunks some of those stereotypes. Also including such interesting aspects as many, many stories by women. We don't often associate women in the desert historically, or just everyday average people from culturally diverse backgrounds. So I like to think the book is something that's a little bit different, a lot different. And it just stems from my passion and love for California's deserts where I grew up. As I told Malcolm Margolin, my publisher, he said something about his son, who lives in New York City and is an artist and totally surrounded with artistic inspiration at every turn with all kinds of groups and people. He said, son, he said, what would I tell my son and his friends? What would they think of if I talked about that section of land that exists between Los Angeles and Las Vegas along Interstate 15? And he didn't say that ironically. And I said, Malcolm, you know what? That's where I grew up. That's where I'm from. So um, this is a book that tries to capture what it's like to be in the middle of nowhere, which in a lot of ways is everywhere. Ouroboros, Amargosa River, a newly designated wild and scenic river. Exits Death Valley at sunset, mouth yawning southwest, intermittent river moving in and out of sand, marking midnight trails across dry skin drifting to the white noon and lifting your desire to flow lower than below sea level, then rising at dawn into fat dunes, having devoured itself once again. The Amargosa is a strange river. It comes from Death Valley, flows southward above ground in places, below ground in other places, 
runs through a narrow gorge, part of the Tonopah Tidewater Railroad that used to run borax from Death Valley into Los Angeles, runs through there. Then it goes into sand dunes. Then it comes out again and flows back up into Death Valley, like in a big J shape, only in the desert. Mirage, Kelso Dunes, East Mojave. My 10-year-old daughter is feeling brave, so we go rock hunting today, explore far beyond the dirt road, just she and I, no dad. We see the sand dunes from miles away, some hallucinogenic scene from the Sahara, camel humps rising from flat desert floor. My daughter wants to climb them, but there's no way to estimate how far away they are, no sure measure to tell how tall. I tell her it's not safe to hike mountains, so unstable, hills that shift in light winds. Our boots would fill with sand, and we'd sink like thirsty prospectors come to find buried treasure. Lured by legends of gold and silver, the rattlesnake's hollow charms. And I'm just going to read um, a short piece from the introduction of the desert book, and then I'll read a few more poems. I was 10 years old in 1973 when my father first drove me in his old Volkswagen bug from our Southern California town of San Bernardino, embedded in the smog 60 miles east of Los Angeles, up the long steep grade of Interstate 15 and over the 4,000 foot lip of Cajon Pass. I held my breath as we reached the top and saw for the first time in my life a land that was as wide and vast as the sea. There at the edge of the Mojave Desert, a long necklace of headlights stretched east for 40 miles. Toward the west, the sky was lit with rose and orange hues. We descended towards the small town of Victorville, racing past Joshua trees, whose thick-needled fists etched gracefully, gracefully and fiercely against the sunset. I knew then and there that I'd found my place, my calling, my landscape. I stuck my head out the window and looked up. There was the evening star, a slice of moon alongside. I was instantly forever smitten. This was an empty and imposing land, rife with danger and thrill. I sensed that an entirely new adventure lay in wait for our family there, where we intended to relocate to be near my father's new job. My intuitions were confirmed when my mother opened a kitchen drawer to find a baby Mojave green rattlesnake in it. When I went to bed serenaded by a symphony of coyotes every night, when my brother went to the hospital with dehydration after climbing a harsh rock peak near our house on an August afternoon. The desert was as silent as a church during a funeral and as wide open and empty as a schoolyard on a Sunday, but it was never, ever boring. And hopefully the book um, opens that up to people. This is something um, of investigation, allure, and surprises at every turn. Teddy Bear Cactus. This poem was inspired by a hike that I took with my dogs and a friend in the very rugged Santa Rosa San Jacinto Mountain Wilderness, which is near Palm Springs. I saddle my big dog Brindle with his two-sided blue backpack, knit tight beneath his gut, cinched together around his chest. He rubs against boulders, trying to scrape it off. The water is for us. He shrugs the weight off and locates the coyote watering hole. Too fast, he jumps across a choya cactus, and dozens of maced, needled fists attach themselves to him. Three hours later, we've extracted the pain from his fur, his tongue, from my friend's hand with needle-nose pliers. Indians trace this path for centuries without dogs, seamlessly navigating the narrow uphill trail. We climbed, forgetting. Um, all my poems are based on true stories, things that really happen. And I, I like to think that there's a lot of stories, as you'll find in No Place for a Puritan, that happen only in the desert. The desert is a place beyond imagination, where imagination begins. <coughs> and Catholic Hill is a real place, a rock peak near where I grew up. She handed me a mirrored butcher knife. Then came the nunchucks, a fifth of vodka. My hair was still wrapped in the French braid knotted with her strong fingers the day before while I was teaching my high school English class. She had removed her long red nails, told me that she planned to shank her mother in the back that day, so I drove her out into the desert after school. We hiked the mountain behind my parents' house, 
The old cross was still lodged into the rocks at top. My initials carved at 14 with my brother's knife. It had been many years since I'd last been there. I could still see my parents' house and wondered how easy it would be for one of us to slip and fall. At school, she had confided in me that she'd thrown a desk at a mean librarian, that she lived in a crack house in South Central LA, that she'd already had four abortions, many dads. I wanted to give her a gift, an old Geiger counter, maybe the rattle or papery skin of a dead snake, a bracelet of rusty barbed wire from a crippled fence, a memento of the school year we were spending together. Instead, I watched while she carved her gang name on the cross, told me that when she grew up, she wanted to fix hair for the dead. Wonder Valley, a real place near Joshua Tree. We have a 1940s Integratron near 29 Palms Marine Base where early UFO sightings have taken place. Now you can get a crystal sound bath there in a geometrically sacred dome. Nearby in a prayer armed Joshua Tree forest, giant statues of Jesus and the 12 disciples in a carefully watered garden, a replica of Sermon on the Mount, a huge white wall with verse. On Highway 62, on the uptown side of the military facility, you have a pyramid-making factory. Choose purple, silver, or red, small or large. There's a phone number on a faded signboard you can call to order one to take home. Our buildings are star-designed here, you see, sprinkled down from some rogue sandstorm in a wind tunnel when saints are asleep and our soldiers take foreign churches, gather orphans in their arms. Yeah, one last poem, and this is my tribute to the extreme heat that we experience in Palm Springs, where I live. Slow freeze. September isn't for ice cream. August cripples the dogs. July sticks to itself. June, a time to lower the blinds. We lived on cool tile floors four months in a row last year, grocery shopping at midnight, sleeping through the day, then our love boiled over when the air conditioner broke down and the frozen pizza thawed too fast. You took my car keys and in slow-mo, you knocked over three orange cones then melted into the road. And that's it for me. Um, before I introduce our next reader, is that okay if Rebecca? Okay. Um, we just like, once again, in terms of the book, I um, really, really got into this and loved doing it, and I just hope that my love and passion for selecting some of the most intriguing and alluring and sharp-edged and beautiful and passionate pieces by a very wide array of authors, including two others who are here tonight, generously donating their time and their reading, and also representing just so many walks of life and so many types of human experiences that um, we, we wouldn't even think of could happen in one region. And this is all in our backyard here, in the desert, right here behind us. Okay, our next reader, um, who's driven all the way from Sacramento today, thank you, is Rebecca K. O'Connor. We're really honored to have Rebecca here tonight. She is a professional animal trail and falconer and is the author of Lift, a memoir published by Red Hen Press, 2009. She has published essays in South Dakota Review, Iron Horse Literary Review, Los Angeles Times Magazine, West, Divide, and was a Pushcart nominee for the 2008 prize. Her novel, Falcon's Return, was a Holt Medallion finalist for Best First Novel, and she has published numerous reference books on the natural world. She has an MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts from University of California, Riverside. As a professional animal trainer, Rebecca has worked with a variety of exotic animals in zoos and private facilities around the US and abroad. She has been a falconer for 15 years and is a nationally known parrot behaviorist. I just think that's so cool. I'm sure you do too. Um, her book, A Parrot for Life, Raising and Training the Perfect Parrot Companion, was published in 2007 by TFH and is required reading for those adopting parrots at rescue, um, several rescue facilities. She is also a nationally sought-after lecturer at parrot clubs and parrot festivals. In all of O'Connor's work, 
Rebecca's work. <laughs> she strives to illuminate or foil the human condition through the animals that surround us. And Rebecca has a beautiful piece in here that I saw in um, LA Times West, just fell in love with and wanted to include it. And Rebecca generously agreed to allow us to reprint this. Um, I'll let her go ahead and read the story. Um, and the story can speak for itself. Let's welcome Rebecca. Thanks. Thanks, Ruth. I would like to do just one reading where someone doesn't introduce me as a parrot trainer. <laughs> I'm teasing. Yes, I'm a famous parrot trainer. No, I am not going to answer questions about how to get your parrot to stop screaming. I have my writer hat on today. Um, this piece is um, sort of an excerpt from the memoir that just came out from Red Hen Press in November. And... Um, the entire memoir is about the first season of flying a peregrine falcon, and this particular bird was a rather irascible bird. And so the book follows that journey and then weaves in my personal life. But this particular piece, um, most of that book takes place right outside of the Salton Sea, which when you hunt on a piece of land and are tortured by a falcon on a piece of land, you, you cannot, um, cannot do anything but fall in love with it. So this piece was sort of my love song to the desert. And it's called Postcard from Above. Easing my hooded peregrine onto his perch in the back, and into the back of the truck, I pretend I don't see the man approaching from the east. He is moving with an intent that makes my palms sweat, despite my focus on tying the falcon's leash and despite the cool morning air. I'm on farmland without permission, and the man's brisk chin-up-shoulders-back walk tells me that the reservoir from which my falcon has just caught a lesser scop is his. The duck in my vest and the protruding chest of the well-fed falcon are evidence that we have both ignored the sign that says, no hunting or fishing. I'm about to be kicked off of my favorite field. The man isn't smiling as he approaches. He holds up a hand when I start to apologize. I'm Mark Draper, he says. I lease this land. I stutter to interrupt, but he hushes me again. I'm not going to kick you off. The guys tell me that you've been flying your bird here for three years. I just wanted to introduce myself. I would shake your hand, but I hold up my hands, smiling. They must look a bit like farmer's hands, imbued with earth and a touch of blood, a little too soiled for handshakes. Thank you, Mr. Draper. There are so few places that are open enough to fly my falcon, and I love this place. We stand for a moment to admire it, a simple sod farm in Thermal, southeast of Indio, and close enough to the Salton Sea that the breeze leaves the taste of sailing on your lips. There's the desert to the north, and date palms to the south and west. I sometimes stop to watch the sunrise and a rose glow through the short palms while the gambles quail scuttle from their breakfast of fallen dates to the safety of the scrub. I savor the hour it takes me to get to this reservoir that irrigates the sod because the best part of the morning is discovering which species of waterfowl happen to be migrating through, passing to and from the Salton Sea. There is no reason to tell Mark Draper that this is paradise. I live an hour away in Banning, but drive to the fringes of the Salton Sea to fly my peregrine during the falconry season, the cool months of October through February. I've been a falconer for 10 years and have watched the vast vineyards of Ontario shrink to nothing or give birth to concrete structures from their sandy soil. The flats in Hemet and Temecula have given way to suburbia as well, and the field near my house where I trained my falcon last year is now a Walmart Supercenter store. Coachella Valley is my wilderness, the only place left with enough open space to satiate the peregrines' tremendous appetite for unadulterated horizon. I just don't know how much longer the landscape will last, or where the ducks we hunt will stop for food when it's gone. Three years ago, a friend of mine took, us up, took me up in his beach craft from the airport in Thermal. My falcon was six months old and stubbornly flying off on a daily basis to hunt the farmlands without me. I would track his transmitter and find him ten miles away on a pole, hungry but still scanning the sky. I wondered what he saw that was inspiring enough to power his wings until he was too exhausted to look for the red-headed girl waving from the ground below. I imagined the possibilities of the landscape and its bounty were buzzing in his head. Too much to take in to decide where to hunt. I don't care for the bump and roar of small planes. 
but I had to see the falcon's view for myself. It was astounding. This tremendous expanse of green checkerboard agriculture garish, garishly stretching from the subdued hues of the desert. Every color change was marked by a blue pond tuck in, tucked in a corner or hidden in the center of a plot of artichokes, a stretch of cilantro, carrot patch, or table grape vineyard. I'd only seen a tiny portion from it on the ground and during the days I had followed the waxing and waning signal, the breadcrumb beeps that indicated the falcon's path. From the sky, I finally understood his winged excursions. I could see from above why the larks liven this land with their flashes of yellow breast, why the mallards stopped to dip their heads in the sparkling water, and why the jackrabbits ventured through the budding vineyards. I didn't want to come down. But like the falcon, I had to land eventually. These days, my falcon rarely indulges in capricious flights across the farmland, and I'm grateful but concerned. I don't want to imagine the changing aerial view or the implications. I don't want to wonder where the waterfowl will go when ponds become swimming pools. I would rather pretend that Mark Draper's sod farm will remain our sanctuary. Next to the pond, Draper peers at the falcon and the Brittany puppy in the back of my truck. I explain that this is the peregrine's third season and the puppy's first. The dog swims to encourage the ducks flight off the water and sometimes the peregrine catches one. I tell Mark that I have to follow the falconer permit regulations, carry a duck stamp, and the same licenses as any hunter with a shotgun. I roll my eyes in case he doesn't realize how ridiculous that is. The falcon can only catch one duck at a time, and once he has eaten his fill, I take the rest home. I freeze what's left for his summer meals when the season is over and the waterfowl have abandoned the heat of the desert for the cool northern climes. I promise Draper that I will always clean up after myself, never walk on the sod when there's a hard frost, and stay out of the farm laborer's way. He waves his hand at me, dismissing my worries. You're welcome here. Enjoy it while it lasts. I wish I didn't know what he meant. But he suspects the family that owns the land he's leasing may have sold a large plot a few blocks older. The falcon and I have lost four Coachella Valley ponds in the last year. Three became housing tracks, and one became a golf course. I know that many farmers in Thermal own their land and that the property values are rising. It won't be long until the acreage is sold to make way for more homes. Farming in California is expensive and depends on the vagaries of weather. Even those who own the land they farm would be crazy not to sell and move where farming is more affordable. I don't want to lose the land where my falcon flies, but I have to admit, I would buy a house in Thermal. I have to admit that as much fish shaking as I have done at the Walmart down the street, I'll shop there. It's convenient. It's close. I like progress. I love California. I just don't know where my falcon is going to hunt 10 years from now. Thank you. Rebecca's piece. Um, it's just a beautiful piece. It stands on its own for so many reasons. And in terms of relating to the desert, um, it's in a section where we talk about the changing desert. Um, the book is arranged into themes. Um, one of them is like refuge in the desert, people who go to the desert, um, crossing the deserts, dangers of the deserts, lore of the desert. There's pieces that speak of the aesthetics, like the music, and um, a lot of the other reasons people go there to live. And the desert is something that is constantly changing. It's not just a set in stone kind of place since we've had lots of population growth in the 20th and into the 21st centuries. And the Coachella Valley is a place where very few people lived until the last, last 100 years. The Salton Sea itself, who could imagine? California's largest lake is down there in the hottest desert, one of the hottest deserts in the world. And it's a lake that shouldn't be there. It was created accidentally with agriculture, water, diverted from the, salt, or the Colorado River in the early 20th century. And the agriculture that's been so huge down there in the Imperial and Coachella Valleys has been shifting and giving way to golf and development. So the desert, we think about that as, you know, there's nothing out there, but this is an area that, who would think of falconry and ponds and, and then golf courses? It's just so strange that all these things would 
happen and coexist like that in such a barren region. So thanks again, Rebecca, for reading that beautiful piece and for writing it too. Are you still able to go Falk? Did you down, go down there at all? I, I did a couple times this year, yeah. You, okay. you can't not go back home. Right. And I would say that um, growth has been a little bit stopped or at least slowed with the economy. And I'm in some ways glad to see that myself. Well, in all ways, really, for me. But um, to say there aren't going to be quite so many golf courses. There's more than 150 golf courses down in the area. To think 100 years ago, there was nothing. So it's really crazy. Okay, and I do want to put a plug in. Um, the infamous or famous North Shore Yacht Club in the North Shore of the Salton Sea, which in its heyday in the 40s and 50s and 60s, particularly the 50s, was um, created by and was the home of a lot of the Rat Packers, Frank Sinatra, Palm Springs party people. They would take their jet boats and ski boats and sit there. They could have drinks and then go out in the Salton Sea. And for many years, it was decrepit because the salinity of the Salton Sea has been increasing. So people stopped going there because it was getting too salty. It got run down. So there's a lot of ruins around it of what used to be resorts. And more people started in the 70s to go out to the Colorado River, Lake uh, Mojave, Lake Havasu. But Riverside County just allotted funds to restore the North Shore Yacht Club, and it's now has been restored. It's a museum, and I know as I just was out there on Sunday, I'm like, oh my god! And I would recommend that's if anyone's going out in that direction, that's a must see. Okay, and I would like to welcome our next reader, who is a desert writer whose works I have read for many years, long before I met Deanne. This is Deanne Stillman, who says that she breaks for sand, as in stop the car. Deanne is a widely published, critically acclaimed writer and is the author of Mustang, the Sega. Did I say that right? Saga. Saga. I should know I'm an English teacher. It's been a long semester. Yeah, I'm a sage on the mind. The Saga of the Wild Horse in the American West, Hewton Mifflin, 2008, which was named a book, best book of 2008 by the LA Times and won a California Book Award silver medal for nonfiction. Deanne is also the author of the bestseller, 29 Palms, A True Story of Murder, Marines, and the Mojave a Los Angeles Times best book of 2001, which Hunter S. Thompson called a strange and brilliant story by an important American writer. And we also have a piece from Hunter S. Thompson in the book, the first chapter from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I was very excited to get. Deanne's book, um, I'm sorry, 29 Palms, um, the book was recently published in a new updated edition by Angel City Press. What year was that, Deanne? Uh, 08. In 2008. Deanne is also the author of Joshua Tree, Desolation Tango, a tribute to Joshua Tree National Park, it published by the University of Arizona Press. And tonight she'll be reading an excerpt from that book, which appears in the desert. Right, which appears in our book, graciously, on Deanne's, um, with her generosity. <coughs> she was, <coughs> she's currently writing Mojave Manhunt. I can't wait until this book is out, because... Um, it'll be published by Nation Books and based on her Rolling Stone magazine piece of the same name. And I've read that piece and wanted to put it in the desert book. It was just too long for us to put in, so I'm really, I was so excited to hear that you're doing a whole book on that. And this was a finalist for a Penn Journalism Award. Deanna is a member of the core faculty at UC Riverside Palm Desert MFA Creative Writing Program. And let's welcome Deanne to read her um, piece based, inspired by her many trips to Joshua Tree National Park. Thanks, Deanne. Thank you, Ruth. That was a really uh, lovely introduction. And uh, thanks again for including me in this really cool anthology. And nice to be in such wonderful company. Rebecca and you and Hunter. <laughs> um, Black Elk, isn't he in here? Really great cast of, oh, well, you have a Native American section. Mojave Indians. Anyway, it's all very cool. Um, uh, this is my, uh, an excerpt from my piece, uh, Rocks in the Shape of Billy Martin, which has um, been, uh, well, it was, I think I wrote it first for the Village Voice, and then um, it's been very widely syndicated. It, it's, uh, um, it's great because it's one of my favorite pieces that I've written, and uh, it's 
a lot of people seem to respond to it. Some of you may know that um, Billy Martin was the late uh, uh, manager of the New York Yankees. And um, having uh, wandered in the Mojave Desert for many years and come upon various um, uh, rock formations that are named officially as rocks in the shape of, you know, the Pope's hat or um, Richard Nixon, I think, somewhere out there. So, anyways, it made me think. Just one day I came up with it. I was missing, I was thinking of baseball and Yankee Stadium and missing it. And... Um, Fortunately for me, came across this strange formation which changed my life. So um, here's a, here is a little bit about those famous rocks in the shape of Billy Martin. I know a place in the Mojave Desert where, where there are rocks in the shape of Billy Martin. I visit the rocks every year to commemorate the return of spring. It makes perfect sense to me that the rocks are in the desert and not a mountain range or forest because the gone but not forgotten Yankee manager was a kind of dugout de gin, an electrical force who materialized to kick funny dust in the other guy's face and then vanished until he had to do it again. Where did he go since we last saw him? Where all legends go, back into the desert, that big sandbox that holds America's deepest secrets, Signif significantly the baseball diamond, which began on a sandlot and invokes forever, is America's most appealing attempt at taming the desert. Yet perhaps not for much longer. With consistently low television ratings for the national pastime, who knows whether it will soon be overtaken by the shifting sands. I grew up far away from these sands under the gray skies of Cleveland, Ohio, the place that tells you it's okay to dream, but not really. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, I guess that's why I always preferred the New York Yankees to the Cleveland Indians, although felt like a traitor for rooting for them until I moved to New York, and why I used to send away for cactuses. I know, you're not I know you're supposed to say cacti, but I don't like the sound of it. That you, should, that you could get from places with names like Cactus Jacks and Desert Botanicals and keep them on a window ledge near my bed. I don't know if my window ledge faced the west or not, but seeing the outlines of my little cactuses against those cloudy skies fueled my fantasies of the never-never land where the turnpike went, the land where the misunderstood found understanding the land where Zorro and Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp wouldn't let anyone hurt you. The land where a girl named Jane lives forever as a calamity. The land where the only thing anyone or anything really wants is a drink of water. Much later, I moved to Los Angeles at the edge of the sands and have lived here for the past 18 years. In the beginning, I toiled in the television mines of Hollywood a task not unlike hauling borax out of nearby Death Valley with a 20-mule team, and found myself making frequent trips to the desert. Week after week, I would flee Hollywood, the Xerox machine of America's dreams, and head for the Mojave, where they all started. I felt at home in this vast space where, if you happened to be near the right dune at the right time, you might stumble across a cosmic joke in the form of a shamanic workshop at the corner of Highway 111 and Bob Hope Drive, a culinary epiphany in the form of the best Hungarian restaurant this side of the Danube, a cultural oasis in the form of a biker with a used bookstore and an espresso machine, or endless miracles of nature such as the desert frogs that leap out of the sands after a rainstorm. In the Mojave, I came to understand that Los Angeles was, like my feelings for it, fleeting, a momentary prop metropolis, and I came to appreciate it as a punchline to a desert joke. Like every enclave of castles in the sand, it's overrun with fakers, F-A-K-I-R-S. Deal proffering Bedouins named Steve wander the dunes, searching for temporary oasis. Dreams rise and fall with the caprice of studio wizards. The real thing, the elusive connection for which all who have attempted to decipher Los Angeles have yearned and failed to take into account is the Mojave Desert, 
where the glitter is refracted not in the sheen of a limousine, but in flecks of obsidian and pyrite and quartz. The Mojave, where the silence is not the thunder of an unreturned phone call, but the flap of a butterfly's wings in the springtime. Actually, that sentence makes no sense. I realize years later, but sounds nice. I can't. Okay. Um, <laughs> the faint, ever-present L.A. Paul begins to dissipate as soon as I plan to head for the desert. For the very word Mojave itself is comforting to say. The harmonic, to the harmo harmonic tones with the beginning sound of M or Mo with a soft O suggest mother, a safe haven, a grounding, and in fact the desert is female, a wide open space that is always there waiting. And so in the time when the days begin to get longer and there is talk of baseball, of trades and possibilities, it is to the Mojave I return. It's not difficult for me to get to the Mojave, just a one-hour drive to the north, up the 405 and over the San Gabriel Mountains, or to the east just twice as far across the 10, formerly Route 66, through San Bernardino and turning off at one of my favorite signs, the one marked Other Desert Cities, just before you get to Palm Springs. I know I am close to the Mojave when the LA radio stations fade from Grammy Award winners to Christian advice shows, and I start receiving transmissions of other bearded evangelicals, primarily ZZ Top. The sun is out, my top is down, and the traffic thins. The native urge to drive fast, nat drive fast naturally assumes command. This is fun and for motorists and highway patrolmen, but not for that other Mojave denizen, the endangered desert tortoise for which I have occasionally swerved to avoid crushing as it lumbers across the pavement. Who says California has no history, I wonder, while a baby version of one of the world's oldest reptiles clambers onto the freeway shoulder and makes for some tiny blue flowers? Excuse me. <clears throat> I cruise on and then, oh joy, another scenic distraction. My first Joshua tree. Now this is the true Mojave. Hi, big guy, the Joshua tree. The Joshua tree grows in only one place in the world, and that is the Mojave Desert, and only at an elevation of two to 6,000 feet. This misunderstood plant has taken a backseat to the towering saguaro, the Charlton Heston of cacti the one that appears in many westerns, sometimes wearing a sombrero and looks like a big, welcoming, goofy person. To me, the Joshua tree is more appealing, a misfit that is the very picture of beauty and terror, a forgiving, although freaky, mirror that doesn't care what your name is, what you do for a living, or what kind of addiction you do or do not have. Maybe the Mormons were onto something in 1851 when they named this weird manifestation in the middle of nowhere the Joshua tree. It's shaped, believe the westering followers of Brigham Young, with its uplifted and multitudinous arms, mimic the bib biblical supplicant Joshua, frenetically gesticulating toward the promised land. Of course, they were right. But to them, the promised land was the future site of Salt Lake City. As far as I'm concerned, the Joshua tree is not telling people to go someplace else. It's pointing the way to other Joshua trees whose lily petals are unfurling now to catch the morning sun. It's pointing to the rest of the Mojave and sometimes if you look hard through the shifting bars of light, even a coffee house. Now I'm skipping ahead a little bit to um, uh, uh, an encounter with um, a particular tree. Deep inside this bizarre preserve, which is carpeted with the ecstatic vegetable, I park my ragtop, grab a bottle of water, and hike up a trail. I pass more campers from Europe than from America and think about this paradox. Inside the park, Joshua trees are now protected from desert-crazed Euros, but outside the park and all over the West, cacti, yes, here cacti sounds perfectly appropriate, are routinely blown away by gun-crazed Americans who go to the desert to shoot. But as I continue up and down a trail that is lined with Palo Verde and Ocotillo and Choya and Sage, the Mojave, as it always does, cleans my slate. And once again, I am aware of only breath and blood moving through my body. The desert San Verbena is in full bloom and there is a creeping plant that looks like orange spaghetti strewn across the tops of the low-lying bushes that hug the path. 
In a little while, I reached my destination, a Joshua tree that is about 200 years old and somehow makes me feel as if I were sitting in my maternal grandparents' rock garden where the daffodils and crocuses shot through the Midwestern thaw every spring, or if you got really quiet, you could hear big Rocky Colavito crunching across the sands of Lakefront Stadium as he stepped up to the plate and took the first swing of the season. I sit down on a warm granite boulder and gaze up into the Joshua tree as the sun pulses behind. Hey you, it says, an alfresco support group minus the sob stories and cigarettes. We knew you'd be back. We've been waiting. Calm down. Stop running. Tommy Hilfiger is not the heartbeat of America. I am. Bring me the arm of Fernando Valenzuela. Do you see how the gringos have stolen his stuff? What will happen to A-Rod, I wonder, but the tree goes on. Yes, this is what the old ballpark looked like before George Steinbrenner and Pete Rose, before cactus lamps, before all-night mini-marts, before 24-hour Bible-themed parks, before rivers were forced to, to flow backwards in order to build a showcase for Kenny G. So slather on the jojoba oil and step up to the plate. We've got a fastball with your name on it. And don't worry if the game goes into extra innings. You'll have plenty of time to get home because, well, this is home, which is why we don't count strikes here. We don't even keep score. By the way, how come they got rid of 10 cent beer night? As the sun sets behind the cactus that's not really a cactus that grows only in the Mojave, I realize that that's the best thing about the desert. Just when you think that it explains everything, it turns around and admits that it's clueless. It takes a big piece of geography to do that. I toast the Joshua tree with my canteen and hit the road. So for more on the rocks, uh, please pick up No Place for a Puritan, and uh, thanks very much. I think we have a few minutes if anybody had questions about the book or for any of the authors. Does that sound good? Yeah. Should we come back up here? Do you want to? Do you want us to come up and answer? Yeah. So you wanted to know what our next book is? Oh, yeah. I haven't finished it. It's based on my last Rolling Stone piece called The Great Mojave Manhunt. And, um, excuse me, it's just this, the temperature change triggers my asthma a little bit. Um, the, uh, it's a, it takes place in the Antelope Valley, the, the Mojave Desert north of L.A. proper. It's L.A. County, the, the desert half of L.A. County. And it's about a, um, a desert hermit who uh, killed a beloved town sheriff uh, in a shootout at his trailer a few years ago up in the Antelope Valley and then um, took off into the Mojave and triggered a uh, five day, massive five-day manhunt involving like eight SWAT teams and FBI and DEA and Edwards Air Force Base. This is a massive uh, hunt. And he, because he knew the desert so well, he was able to outfox this high-tech posse. Um, this was the biggest manhunt in modern California history. And my piece focuses on the manhunt, but what I'm going to do in my book is open it up and tell the full backstory of the, the, you know, this hermit and the sheriff and all the other players in the story and get into the history of the Antelope Valley and just the, the kind of thing I, that I love to, to write and uh, similar in, in thematically to uh, 29 Palms in that I talk about, um, you know, characters we don't ordinarily, uh, don't ordinarily hear from and, uh, and uh, of course the desert is a key player. Adam, along that theme, what's really interesting about Dan's new book, um, when I grew, was growing up out there, I actually knew people like that. Um, at one time in this area up behind Apple Valley in the foothills called the Marianas, I met this man. He was a, he lost his college professor job back east, and he had started some visionary thing called Eutropian Enterprises, and he was living in a little red barn in the middle of nowhere. And he basically just drank peyote tea all day long and had a cast of all these desert trippy people coming and going. And I just found that fascinating. I used to go there and hang out and actually met one of the members of the Manson family there. And my friend was saying, that guy's in the Manson family. Oh my God. And I was 19, you know, like, oh, this is kind of cool. 
you know, now I probably would have gone home. But um, the desert has a little story for this, for um, people hiding, being on the lamb, right here in our California desert. And in Puritan, there's actually an excerpt from the Harry Lawton book, Willie Boy, which is one of the famous, um, as we call, manhunt stories of California and the desert and the US, which took place um, almost exactly 100 years ago, starting in Banning and going out into the Mojave Desert. And so it's very interesting that Deanne is following that tradition and picking up you are actually mentioned that to me, right? That yeah, the story there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, and that was the last, the last uh, big manhunt, in, in, low-tech manhunt in uh, the West for. Uh, wasn't Willie Boy billed as sort of the last surviving Indian? I mean, it was a. He really was one of the last holdout, last Native Americans, uh, to um, just one of the last notorious Native Americans, period. I mean, this was in the early 20th century and Geronimo had come in and all, you know, the, the frontier was basically closed and he, he was, because he knew the desert so well, um, uh, was able to uh, outfox, a, you know, a, a sheriff and a, um, and a, you know, a dedicated posse for a number of days after uh, um, uh, killing the father of a, a Native girl he was in love with. And uh, absconding with her into the into the Mojave. It's an incredible story, and as Ruth said, you, you should check it check it out. As Ruth says, many parallels to the one I'm working on now. Is that a book in and of itself? Yeah, yeah, Willie Boy, and it's excerpted in the note. Or in the Willie anthology. Boy, mm -hmm. Willie Boy, yeah. There's a movie too with uh, Robert yeah. Blake. Which is even more ironic, yeah. <laughs> an awesome movie. Uh, and actually, in my memoir, one of my favorite places to fly. Uh, the Peregrine is a place called Whitewater Ranch, and that was one of the places where uh, Willie Boy held out for a little bit, or just outside of Whitewater Ranch. So Whitewater? it all comes together. Is that the Whitewater? Yes. Whitewater um, has been acquired, it used to be a fish hatchery, and it's been acquired by the, um, what's it called, one of the Nature Conservancy? Yeah. Actually, that's a back up the. You're thinking of a different one? Mm, well, there's up the. There's Whitewater Ranch, and then there's back where the oasis is. And oh, okay. I think they picked up where the oasis is. Okay. Yeah, back where the oasis is um, is now an area where it's open to the public for hiking and camping. Yeah. It's really the, beautiful. I recommend going there. The ranch, the stalkers, the, the uh, stalkers were not like people who stalk you, but S-T-O-C-K-E-R. The stalkers were the last people to own that, and um, Mr. Stalker was one of the last um, marshals. And was involved in some of the last, I don't think he was involved in uh, Willie Boy's Hunt, he was after that, but um, he was one of the last, like, lawmen that rode a horse and yeah. did manhunts that way, and so, okay. yeah, it all ties together. Any other questions? Yeah. I get asked that quite a bit, and I'm glad because it's, some people actually start arguing with me, they try to make, you know, say, what's this, you know, and, um, it's actually the title of one of the poems in the book by a man named William Justima, who, and this is what I love about the book too, there's some very obscure things in this anthology that I only uncovered through a lot of tedious research. He went to World War II and spent a year wandering the California desert after that, basically on an existential questioning, you know, what is the meaning of life, is there a God? And he penned a poem called No Place for a Puritan that appears in the book. He published one collection of poems in 1945 then went on to, he didn't write anymore, but he became an, a well-known wallpaper designer. As wallpaper emerged, so it's really bizarre. So that is the title of one of the poems in the book. I don't, it just sounded very catchy to me, and there's so many plays on the word, the ironies of there's no, you know, it's no place. We think of the religious experience, which, but there's a lot of pieces in the book that um, refer to or draw their inspiration from the idea of God in the desert and spirituality in the desert or the absence thereof. But it also, um, the idea of no place, but it's every place. So I just thought it was kind of cool and ironic. So and the intriguing. lesson is that if you fail, if you fail as a writer, you can become a wallpaper designer? Absolutely. Excellent. <laughs> I know. My parents will be very happy. <laughs> Anybody else? Maja? Thank you. I've been kind of for 12 years, so for me, it's a good discovery of the new 
<laughs> so, um, but you had uh, something there which is against uh, the development, mm -hmm. all sorts of development, and so our energy always seemed to be something really nice and sweet and polite and really obnoxious, like cold. Mm -hmm. So would you compliment? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. I thought it was crucial to include a section. So we're looking at all the different um, ideas, interpretations, and uses of our desert regions. That there is a huge rush. They're calling it the 21st century gold rush. We had the gold rush of California in the 1860s, which didn't really do a whole lot of good for the Native American people. Many who were killed off randomly, and then also, you know, the damage environmentally and so forth. So. It doesn't necessarily have a good connotation that there is a rush going on that most people aren't aware of by corporations who want to lease public BLM lands. The BLM manages most of the desert that is not privately owned. And these are applications from corporations, many of them in places that are near or adjacent or even in some of our state parks and wilderness areas and adjacent to Joshua Tree National Park. What a lot of people don't realize is that once again, in spite of many efforts in the last 50 years, California Desert Protection Act being one, that the California desert is once again being seen as a wasteland. That there's nothing out there, why shouldn't we put these things out there? So this is what I want people to examine. Um, many, many reasons. There are a lot of grassroots people. Deanne is good friends with a couple that was um, instrumental in defeating Eagle Mountain Dump which was a proposed site near Joshua Tree to ship out the majority of Los Angeles' garbage right next to Joshua Tree National Park. And um, a grassroots group just basically defeated, helped defeat um, this huge corporation that wanted to put in solar power links through part of the Anza Borrego State Park, which is some of the last remaining virgin wilderness in the country. So the reason this may not, not be good for the desert is because it takes a lot of resources and space, and the desert in California is second in biodiversity only to the rainforest. And I just think I wanted people in the book to be examining what writers are saying about why the desert is important as an environmental resource, as well as an aesthetic resource, and even a place to live. But there's other issues too in this section, such as water, development, how can people continue to live there, where we can, we know that some of these issues face our entire region, right? The water issue is a really big one. So I wanted those things to be in the book because I think they're very current and very, like in Rebecca's piece, you know, even the loss of falconry, you might think, well, that's just somebody's hobby, but it really relates to all of us and our quality of life. One of our last remaining open spaces that people love. So, but are we going to love it to death? That's something I wanted. Thanks yeah, for asking that. I just want to add, the situation in, in our deserts right now is exactly like what went on during Chinatown. You know, that's Chinatown, Jake. It, it, the, those levels of, of, uh, of um, you know, corruption and uh, trade-offs and uh, chicanery and just greed, good old American greed and plunder. And then the fact is we do need alternative sources of energy. We've got to go somewhere. Um, so, I mean, there are all sorts of forces swirling around now, uh, you know, our deserts, and uh, it's kind of what we're all writing about here. And I, as I feel, you know, as our wilderness go, so goes America, really. Yeah, the desert, it's like a big land grab right now. So the, the idea is that you can become aware, interested, educated, and there's, um, Cal Diane Feinstein has a new California Desert Protection Act, 2010 proposed. So it's worth checking that out and just seeing what's going on, how things are being diced up and sliced up. There's um, several new wilder um, national parks being proposed for the desert. So just something I wanted people to be aware of. It's not just a place out there. There's a lot going on, changing very rapidly. Any other questions? Yeah. I was just wondering, Rebecca, what are you writing? Um, I'm in the middle of a novel, halfway through a novel that uh, is definitely a landscape novel because that's what I do, although it's um, set in the future and in a place where um, we have separated ourselves from nature. So the theme the theme continues. Um, to me, you know, that's what the desert is about too. You know, we can't put nature in a bottle. We have to interact with it, but how do we save it and still be a part of it? And I think that that's always... Um, 
It's funny because I thought that when I wrote the memoir, I was writing that to get it out of my system, and it turns out that um, you really do just write the same book over and over, because that's really what the novel is, too. Um, it, it's an exploration of how nature changes us and makes us better, and how do we save it, and um, how do we stop ourselves from plundering it while still enjoying it. Yeah, that's where I would, I would like to suggest anyone reading Puritan to look particularly to the Native American pieces, the Kuya Indian, Every part of the desert has been continuously lived in and used and understood and related to by the diverse Native American tribes. Um, and they don't think of the desert as just this space. They think of the desert in relation to. For example, the word Mojave, I was really enlightened to learn. Does anyone have any idea what that means? I say it. First base okay. 29 pounds and I forgot what I said. Yeah, it means people who walk alongside the water. Is that the last thing we think of? <laughs> from the Mojave Indians, right, along the Colorado River. But that's the last thing we think of. It's another one of these ironies. But it's just a word that really captivates our imaginations, Mojave. It's, so, a, it's a beautiful and mysterious sounding. Yeah. You know, it resonates right. up and down and all across the scale. Yeah, and the people, but the idea that they had to, they lived in this very harsh climate. They still live there, but they have to be beside the water to survive. It's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm halfway through my first novel, and there's a mm -hmm. large section about the desert in it. Okay. And uh, uh, I'm looking, and this is like a technical question, if, if anybody happens to know good local workshops to continue learning the art of writing without quite getting a full-blown MFA with masters like Diane Stillman. <laughs> <laughs> you mean here in Los Angeles? Uh, yes, because actually Diane's one of my instructors at UCLA, and she's absolutely outstanding, and oh, it's a real privilege to learn. This is right after you published right now, published a fantastic book. Well, thank you. I'm sure you'd be happy to hear that people 29 pounds hate it. That's not entirely true. They hate it. There's always they have a lot of community up there. Up and makes an inflammatory no, and no, inaccurate I, statement I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Some people, are, it, it's a very controversial book. Yeah. I took yeah. on, I take on uh, some powerful forces, but mm -hmm. also I get mail all the time from kids out there who thank me for standing up for mm -hmm. them and telling their stories. And uh, because of my book, that certain mil policies, the military changed certain yeah. policies, mm -hmm. and and, and um, it's been added to a lot of college courses on literary nonfiction. So um, it's, it's just an in inaccurate way of framing. Yeah, it's just like somebody who thought that it was not being charitably portraying twenty-nine Well, I don't try to. It's not about no. whether or not I was charitable. I I, I told the truth. Some yeah. that upset some something people. Happened. Other people were happy about it, but. Sure. Please frame my work correctly. Well, it's very, Thank you for your kind words. It's very true of the desert in general, is that there's so many different layers of experiences. 29 Palms has a long history. Um, the actual oasis there was inhabited for centuries by the Shimwavi Indian. And after the Willy Boy incident, they were kicked out, removed, and sent down to the Palm Springs area. And um, then it was acquired by the park. And then later on, as we know, the military came in. But there's a long history of people being there and using the area. And then a strong community of people who've been there for generations. I know some of those people. And then the mishmash, everything that accompanies a military town, which happens all over the country, the good and the bad, the ugly, you know. And then there's all those layers of people who are living up there, rock climbing and living in Joshua Tree, music ravers. So it's just very hard. I mean, there, that's a story that could have taken place anywhere, I think. But uh, well, yes and no. I mean, it had, first of all, obviously, it takes place in a military town, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and, and in this particular town, it has to do with um, uh, life in the shadows of the one of the world of the world's largest marine base, and and uh, who are the rootless kids whose families have ended up settling there, and what happens when they collide with the military? So. I mean, in certain ways, their behavior is informed in very, you know, very, uh, in in a very, um, very directly by uh, the desert in a way that wouldn't happen in a military town in another kind of landscape. Um, you know, so it's very specific to to 29 Palms and that kind of town, um, a town that depends directly on the Marine Corps for most of its income, and then the secondary sources is um, Joshua Tree National Park, the wilderness, which is under siege. And some people there were concerned that my book might have driven away tourism, which did not happen. And in fact, it increased tourism. Um, 
So, yes and no, that's a long way of saying yes and no. I mean, sure, murders happen everywhere, but do they all involve Marines? Do they all involve teenagers who are taking care of their friends' babies? And, and do they all involve, you know, kids who are, are um, taking care of Marines as they prepare for war and then come back from war? No. So, you know, that makes it a very specific kind of story, but of course, I like to think, you know, goes to universal themes. Anybody else? How about some of the quiet people in the back? Mm -hmm. So my friends who came out. Your turn. No. <laughs> okay. Um, is that are we going to have authors sign or just people want to? Okay. Well, thanks everybody for coming, and um, I just hope you enjoy the book, and if not, just enjoy. The desert? No. But <laughs> buy the book first because it'll tell you all the cool things about the desert. Oh, yeah. And um, a lot of you'll see favorite writers, Joan Didion, Aldous Huxley, and then obscure people you've never heard of, and emerging and new writers, poetry, journal snippets, a little something for everybody, yeah. as I like to say. Yeah, so, it's a wonderful collection. Thank really. you. Yeah. I'm, I, glum, I was happy to get it done because it was a lot of work. I know it was. Okay. And I want to thank um, Skylight Books for hosting the event. And I would like to thank Ruth and Deanne and Rebecca for a wonderful reading, and thank you all for coming. As I mentioned before, books are for sale at the counter. It's going to take me one second to put up a table, but then you can come and have your book signed. I'm sure that I'll be happy to sign copies of the book. So uh, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashley and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, or at the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.